mission. The gospel compels mission. So uh, just uh, in terms of introductory comments, I want to a- answer a couple of questions for us as we get going this morning. First of all, uh, what is mission? What do we mean by mission? Because it, it is kind of a church word, though in many ways uh, we'll hear it culturally. Many organizations have mission statements, right? But what we mean when we talk about mission is the idea of introducing people to Jesus. It's as simple as that. Introducing people who don't know Jesus, introducing them to Jesus. Now, uh, another way that the church oftentimes might refer to this is making disciples. Okay, and, and we would talk about there being a broad spectrum in disciple making, in making followers of Jesus. So last week we talked about community. That, that has very much an inward focus when we talk about making followers of Jesus. We are building each other up, encouraging each other, pointing each other to Jesus. We are doing that together as a community. It's very inward focused, but mission is very externally focused. It's, it has an outward focus. And so what we always want to do is have balance, have tension between these two things. Because if we just become inward focused, we turn into a country club. And, and we don't have anything to say to the world around us. If we're only focused on externals, those out there, then we'll never care for each, o- for each other. And, and we won't have any depth of relationship. There's, there's no real community that will be experienced here. And so we want to try. We do this imperfectly. We're not pretending we do this perfectly or even well at times. But we want to fight for having balance and tension between these two things because we think it's what the Bible presents and we think it's healthy. So mission is essentially introducing people to Jesus. Why is it a core value for us here at Center Church? In John 20, 21, this is the end of the gospel of John. Jesus says there, as my father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So Jesus explicitly teaches his followers. He's saying, this is what I came to do. I came on a mission that I was sent on by my father. And now, that I am leaving to go be with my Father, I am now sending you on this very same mission. So Jesus clearly sends his followers on the same mission that he undertook while he was here. Also, another reason that it's a core value for us here at Center Church is that it is really the only reasonable response to what Jesus has done to us and for us. For us to just think like, oh, Jesus came to me to save me, to rescue me, and now I'm just going to kick back and enjoy life and live in comfort and, and not care about anybody else, that's not a logical response to what Jesus has done for us. This is the only reasonable response that we would do the same thing that Jesus has done for us. Also, the Bible is really explicit about this, that Jesus sends us on mission, on his mission, and in doing that, he is sending us on his mission for our joy. Oftentimes, this is viewed as something that we have to do. And, and so we begrudgingly submit, all right, I'm supposed to do this. I have to do this. Uh, I know it says it in the Bible, but I, I'm going to do it with clenched teeth. And I'm going to do it with a furled brow. But Jesus says, teaches us explicitly that us living on the mission that he sends us on will result in our joy. In John 20, 21, that verse that we just read, just prior to that, Jesus says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So it's for our joy. It's also for our 
peace as well. And so the intention is, as we bring hope and joy and peace to others, they would also encounter true hope and peace and joy, and those realities would be multiplied, that they would then be shared with us and others that we bring it to as well. So that's what mission is. It's why it's a core value for us here at Center Church. Um, Before we get into the text that we're looking at this morning, I want to give just a few disclaimers uh, for us this morning. So on a weekly basis, we endeavor to speak in such a way that both Christians and non-Christians would understand what's being spoken about. We want to be understandable. Now, primarily we speak to Jesus Church because that's who we are. So we, we would not fall in the camp of seeker-sensitive, but we would fall in the camp of seeker-aware. We want to be aware of the fact that there are non-Christians who inhabit these places as well. And so we want to be able to be a community that, that is inviting to non-Christians. And so we always want to assume that they are in our midst, that we're speaking in a language that they would understand. And by modeling this, also the intention is that as you leave here, that you can speak in such a way that you can communicate what Jesus has done in your life in such a way that people who are not Christians, people who have never encountered Jesus in any meaningful way, that they would be able to understand what you're talking about as well. But I want to be explicit. On a Sunday like today, I am speaking very pointedly to Christians. And the reality, or the reason that I'm doing that is because I'm talking about something that flows from believing the gospel, that flows from believing the good news of Jesus. So if someone's not believing the gospel, we would not expect them to be acting in the way that I'm talking about this morning. So I want to be really explicit. I'm talking to Christians this morning. I hope to do it in such a way that if there's non-Christians amongst us that they will understand. And and it's good for any of you who are non-Christians, who are kind of kicking the tires of Christianity, that you can understand, oh, this is what Jesus calls us to. This is what it looks like. Also, I just want to acknowledge the fact that this topic can make us uncomfortable. When we think about this kind of thing, some of us will feel shame. We think, I know that I'm supposed to do this. I've heard my pastor talk about this. I know people need Jesus, but I've failed in doing this. And, and because I've failed, I'd rather just ignore the feeling that it creates in me. And so I'd rather not engage in it in any way. For others of us, we might feel fear around this reality. And we think, people might ask me a question that I don't know the answer to. I don't want to look like a fool to other people, so I'll just not even engage in a conversation with people because I don't want to go there. The reality in that is that we're fearing man more than God. And, And ultimately, Jesus wants to set us free from fear. It says, perfect love or Jesus' love drives out fear. And so if we're captive to fear, Jesus wants to set us free from that. So, Please hear me. What we're talking about this morning is basic Christian living. So this is not what hyper-Christians do, the hyper-spiritual people do. This is not what people do for extra credit in the Christian life. This is normal, basic Christian living. This is the mission that Jesus has sent us 
on, that he's called us to. And, and so the expectation is that we engage in this day in, day out. We structure our lives in such a way that we, we are thinking as people who are on Jesus' mission. Okay, last disclaimer here. This is our primary growth strategy. You living on mission. Myself, living on mission is our primary growth strategy. We're not doing a ton of advertising. Like, that's not how we want to grow as a church. We want to engage in meaningful relationship with other people. We want to lay before them the grace of Jesus. We want to pray that they would be astounded by it, that their worlds would be turned upside down, and they would be drawn into relationship with Jesus. As we believe the gospel, we will be, if we are truly believing the gospel, we will be powerfully transformed. And as we are powerfully transformed, Jesus will move us through fear, over fear, around fear, to share his good news with other people. Okay, so those are my disclaimers for us this morning. So we're going to be in the book of Titus this morning. So if you have a physical Bible, you can turn there. If you've got a device, you want to swipe there. Uh, you'll also be able to follow along on the screen behind me if you like. Titus is near the end of the New Testament, and we're going to be in chapter 3 this morning. I'm going to be reading uh, verses 3 through 9. So Titus 3, verses 3 through 9. The Apostle Paul writes, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. So what we find Paul doing here in verse 3 is he is describing the unseemly story of humanity. He talks about humanity being foolish and disobedient, about being slaves and being consumed by hate. And I think when most of us read chapter 3, I'm, I'm guessing that most of us don't think, ah, that's me. That's a description of me. Because the reality is that's not a list that people want to be on. We don't want to be described as those things. We envision ourselves as wise, not as fools. And the ironic thing is that fools don't recognize that they are fools, right? Like we just wouldn't see that. We don't view ourselves as being blindly or foolishly led astray by others. We would probably paint that picture more as we're trailblazers or we're adventurers. We're not being led astray as fools would be. 
When we think of our passions and pleasures, so think of your hobbies or your family, your money, uh, your jobs. When we think about those things, we like to conceive of the skills that we maybe possess or how those skills translate into us being helpful towards other people. Or maybe by our participation in those passions and pleasures, the happiness that we will cultivate and we will create for ourselves. We believe that our passions and our pleasures create happiness for ourselves. So I experience this, I mean I experience this much more regularly than this, but one way in which I really experienced this in a profound way was I played college basketball, okay? And when, as I played college basketball, I, I put a ton of effort. Y you can't play a college sport and not like give yourself over to it in a significant way. And so uh, I played ball in college, uh, but I experienced uh, a freak injury when I was there. And this freak injury caused me to be able to, first of all, not be able to play to the same extent. I, I just didn't possess the same athletic ability that I did initially, uh, but then eventually having to give up basketball all the way. I, I thought that as I worked hard, as I got better, as I grew in becoming a better basketball player, that that would allow me to increase my happiness. And I did experience that. I love being with my teammates. I loved working hard. I love seeing the growth that would result from working hard. And I thought that I was controlling my happiness. But what happened when I experienced this or suffered this injury was I realized that basketball was really limit, limited in its ability to give me happiness. I was really limited in my ability to control my happiness. So I thought that I could control my happiness through basketball, but what I had to come to realize through a ve very painful experience was that I was controlled by basketball. It was actually calling the shots. I was worshiping it. It had become an idol to me. Passions and pleasures are great. They're gifts from God. Basketball is a neutral thing. It's not an evil thing. I turned it into an evil thing because I tried to turn it into something more than it really was. Passions and pleasures are great, but when they become about us, they enslave us. They suck the life out of us. Robert Shell, a member of our community, he reminded me of a quote by C.S. Lewis this past week. This, this quote by Lewis says this, As you perhaps know, I haven't always been a Christian. I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. C.S. Lewis understood that a stiff drink would make him happy in a temporal sense. It, it would provide him a sense of happiness, but that happiness could not last. If he continued to go back to that, let's say in one evening, over and over and over, he's not going to feel great. If he continues to go back to that bottle of port day after day after day and consumes large amounts of it, it's going to have massive negative ramifications for him and for those 
around him. The gifts that God gives will provide us happiness. They will bring pleasure to us. But if we put our eggs in the basket of seeking happiness only in temporary circumstances, we will be deceived. We will find that our passions and our pleasures are actually enslaving us. Though they're given to us for our enjoyment, that enjoyment is intended to redirect us back up to Jesus to say, look at him. Look at these good gifts that he's given to me for my enjoyment. He is the good giver of the gift. The extent that that gift can provide us pleasure is very limited. And when we go beyond that, when we look to it for more than we should, it will enslave us. Paul's another great phrase here. He says, passing our days in malice and envy. I picture someone sitting on a shaded porch on a really hot day. Sweat kind of dripping down their forehead. They're drinking an ice-cold beverage. The cold, there's a cool breeze that's maybe blowing by that allows them to feel cool. Their bare feet maybe are perched up on something. On the outside, you look at this person and say, they are relaxed. They are satisfied. But, but maybe what we don't see is them looking across the way at their neighbor's house or their neighbor's yard. Maybe their neighbor's family playing in the yard and they see things there that they wish that they had. That they think that if they had those things, they would provide them satisfaction in, in their inner soul that they are yearning for. And so we would look at this person on their porch, seemingly enjoying life, but inside they could be filled with malice and envy, wishing that they had something else, something more that they think would ultimately provide them what they're looking for. Though it doesn't look that way, they are passing their days with malice and envy. And then Paul ends this description of humanity saying they are hated by others and hating one another. People who are consumed in hate, who are miserable. It's a miserable existence to be consumed in hate. And I think when reading this description in verse 3, many of us will tend to slot certain people we know in each category. We'll think, aha, I wish this person was hearing this or could read this. They really need to understand this thing about themselves. But what I find so interesting about Paul as he writes this is he's not thinking that way. He's writing to Titus, his understudy. And as he writes to him, he says, for we ourselves were once. And then he goes into this description. In this, he indicates that there is some distance from these actions, right? He's saying, we were once that way, that there has been transformation that has happened. We were that, but we're now something else is what he's going to go on and say. But though there's some distance there, there's not so much distance that he's forgotten about these things. There's still a nearness to these realities. Paul would describe himself as a fool for Christ, 
But he understands that he's the chief of sinners. He is not sinless. He's still living in his sinful flesh. He's still foolish. He's still disobedient. And he still understands this reality about himself. He's not so far removed from it. It's like if you go to a bonfire some night, and then you come home, and you go to bed, you wake up the next morning, and you smell the clothes that you wore that night. It still smells like a bonfire. You can't get it out, right? And the same is for us. Isn't the intention is that those who trust in Jesus, that they would live in this way, that they would still understand that the fact that they live in their sinful nature, that I live in my sinful nature, that I still have this sense of stank attached to me. That I don't move so far beyond it that I view others as below me, that I'm superior than others because I'm no longer that way. No. They are what I once was. I should be able to identify with them, to understand where they are at. So with Paul's description here in verse 3, if you're a non-Christian, this is who you are. This is who you are. If you are a Christian, this is who you were. It's not who you are right now. This is who you were. But we need to understand that we are no better than someone who is still in this state. And this gets emphasized all the more by Paul as he continues to write. In verse 4, he writes, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Okay, so two things here. First of all, Paul, he, he gives this unseemly description of humanity, and then he says, but. He's, he's painting like this stark contrast. This is who you were. This is who you are. You were foolish. You were disobedient. You were led astray. But you no longer are that. Something has changed. Something significant has changed. And secondly, what has changed is not you pulling up your bootstraps, you fixing yourselves, but what changed you appeared. Jesus appeared, almost like out of thin air. And Paul emphasizes this all the more in verse 5 as he says, He, being Jesus, saved us, not because of works done by us. God showed up. He saved because he is good. He saved sinners. He saved his enemies because he is love. And he demonstrates his incomparable goodness and love by saving foolish people. Jesus becomes a fool. Jesus is the epitome of wisdom, and he becomes a fool so that fools like us would become wise, would be saved by him. Paul writes elsewhere that the foolishness of God is wiser than men. That which is the most foolish thing of God is much wiser than anything that we could conjure up on our own. Now, man's wisdom would say we should do something 
to earn salvation. There's got to be a list that we should wake up every day and say, I need to do these things every day, and then I will be saved. And all of us feel this, because it's in our sinful nature. We need to earn, we need to perform. That is anti-gospel. That is, not, that is what the gospel is pushing against. This is not how God rolls at all. Our salvation does not display our good works. Our good works display God's salvation. And, and even our good works are flawed. Isaiah talks about how our good works, that they damn us. They curse us. Our good works are flawed in many ways. And yet, through God's grace, through his kindness, others can see the glory of his salvation through our flawed good works. We are saved only by God's mercy. But God doesn't just save us initially. He also gives us the Holy Spirit, which is mentioned in verse 7. So God saves us, but then he gives us the Holy Spirit because the reality is it's not as though God hands us the baton and then we are going to add to what Jesus has already done. No, he gives us the Holy Spirit to keep us, to keep us saved, because the reality is we would run off, and we do run off many times, but the Holy Spirit keeps us. He ensures our ongoing salvation. And then in verse 7, it states that we are justified by Jesus' grace. This means that we are spiritually made right. To be justified means we are made right. And we're made right by God's undeserved kindness, by his undeserved favor, by his grace. And so we get this picture in salvation that it's all about God. It's not about us. And so part of what I want to do, we're not even talking about mission yet, right? But what I want to do is I want to pull back, and this is very similar to what Dan did last week as he was talking about community, to pull back to get this massive picture of what motivates our mission. What motivates our mission is Jesus' mission for us. He came and he did the unthinkable. He came and did what we could not do, what we would not do on our own. So we're looking at Jesus' mission, which is the same mission that he then calls us into when we trust in him. And Jesus does all of this. He saves people so that we can become heirs. We can be children, his children, beneficiaries of life with him. And he does this. We should understand he's doing this knowing that he is the, the one who best knows how to please us. To give us that which will ultimately satisfy us. So Paul draws this star stark contrast. This is who you were. Christian, this is now who you are. You have been saved, made right, justified by God's grace. Not of your own doing. You have been saved by God's good work to emphasize the glory of God's salvation. 
This is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus. This is what many of us have heard over and over throughout our lives. But you know what? It's exactly what we need to hear again. We need to hear the story over and over and over because we forget. We forget how estranged we were from God. We forget how spiritually deranged we really were. We think we were not that bad. We'll compare ourselves to other people and say, oh man, look at that. Good thing I was never that way. No, we were that and then some. We were hopeless. We were spiritually dead. And the only reason that we're here this morning, the only reason we look at Jesus and we see something good, the only reason that we want to follow Jesus in our lives is because he came to us. He came to rescue us. We are people who are manipulated by our passions and our pleasures. We are people who will justify our anger and our hatred and our envy. We need to hear this good news. How badly we are in need of it. And how far Jesus went for us. We need to hear it over and over. Be reminded how amazing it is. And we need to be reminded that we did not make ourselves right. God is the one who makes us right. We don't hunt Jesus down. He appears to us. We don't wash ourselves by doing good works. He washes us. Paul makes it really clear that we need to gaze at the gospel. We need to gaze at these realities. We need to gaze at the fact that this is who God is and this is how he saves us. And we see that in verse 8, as Paul says to Titus. I want you to insist on these things. He wants Titus to communicate these things over and over, to continue to insist on them. He wants Titus to teach these truths about Jesus. Because he understands this. For Titus to insist on these truths is what will lead to belief in Jesus. And belief in Jesus is what will move people to be careful to devote themselves to good works, as it says in verse 8. Gospel belief compels intentional living that is carefully devoted to good works. Our good works do not flow out of us being pious. Our good works do not flow out of us being hyper-disciplined. Our good works flow out of believing in who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And I love the fact that Paul uses this phrase, careful to devote, to be carefully devoted. You think about what does that mean for us as we live on mission? To be careful as we look at our calendars to be careful in how we budget our money, to be careful in how we live our lives, that we would be devoted to Jesus' mission. And it's so easy to be devoted to our mission, right? This house project, 
climbing the corporate ladder, whatever it is, something with our children. So easy to fool ourselves regarding our passions, our pleasures, to be devoted to our own things. Gospel belief compels intentional living that is carefully devoted to good works. Gospel belief does not compel intentional living that's carefully devoted to our comfort. Now, it doesn't mean that gospel belief does not provide comfort. 2 Corinthians talks about how God is the God of all comfort. Okay, so we will find comfort in and through the gospel, and yet, that's not where that verse in 2 Corinthians ends. God comforts us so that we might comfort those who need to be comforted. That's the mission piece, right? So gospel belief compels intentional living that's carefully devoted to good works. And then Paul says, this is excellent and profitable. This is excellent and profitable. So, in the time that remains, what I want to do is I want to talk about what these good works are, because this gets us to the mission piece. So what does Paul have in mind here? John Stott, quoting another theologian by the name of Gordon Fee, says, the dominant theme in Titus is good works, and that for the sake of outsiders. Our good works are for the sake of those who are outside the church. The good works that Jesus works in us will not terminate on us. Jesus' good work on our behalf will move us to good works on behalf of others. And we talked about community last week. It will move us in the direction of those within our community, the internal focus, but it will also move us outside of our community, give us this external focus. So I want to get really practical here with what good works are and what good works are not. We're going to talk about what good works are not, first of all, because Paul talks about this in verse 9. He says, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. So what are foolish controversies? What is dissension? What are quarrels about the law? It's the opposite. So we, we heard Paul saying this is profitable and this is excellent. These are unprofitable and worthless. So he says here quarrels about the law. So if you think about law in the Bible, we oftentimes think Ten Commandments, okay? So this is primarily uh, what we would think about, but we could think about the whole Old Testament and Old Testament and the hundreds of laws that are there. But but just for our sake this morning, boiling it down to the Ten Commandments, then we have to ask ourselves: Okay, in the Old Testament we read, "Let's not murder." Now I'm thinking most of us would look at that and we'd be like, "I'm doing pretty good with that one." I I've not murdered anybody in the last week or ever. Right? But is, is the law what the Old Testament says, or is the law what Jesus says when he comes along and he is fulfilling the law and he makes it all the more impossible for the law to be followed? When he says, if you have hatred in your heart towards someone, you are killing them. That is the same as murdering somebody. 
reality is, we cannot follow the law. And Paul's saying, don't quarrel about the law. Jesus came to fulfill the law. We were out of town for a couple days this week, and we were driving back yesterday. And as we were driving back, I saw this bumper sticker. And this bumper sticker said, keep the Ten Commandments. Keep the Ten Commandments. And I saw that, and I wanted to just start beating my head against my window. Because I thought, what does that communicate to people? What, are, what if, if we were to put that on our car, what are we trying to accomplish with that? The civic order, are we trying to put a yoke on somebody, a burden on somebody, that they would try to do something that is impossible for them? The point of the Christian faith is that we can't keep the law, that we need Jesus. He's the one who kept the law for us. And so we believe in him. Now, believing in him will cause us to be shaped and formed in certain ways and will ultimately lead us to walk in the way that Jesus did. So yeah, we should not kill people. We should not worship false gods. But the point is not for us to try and follow those things. The point for us is to believe the gospel, to believe in the one who has already done that for us, because we so easily will turn this into us. If it's about us keeping the law, then we will quickly slip into this way of thinking that's very moralistic. Okay, I got to do these things or God's not going to like me. I'm not, I'm not going to keep my foot in, in the door to heaven if I don't do these things. No. Jesus did it. Jesus keeps us. It's not about us. It's not about what we do. It's about what Jesus has done. And so Paul is saying, don't quarrel about the law. I was thinking about a conversation I had with my wife about foolish controversies. So my wife had, uh, at one point, she'd made this comment to me um, that I was looking at my phone a lot. And I started to engage in this conversation with her thinking, well, I do look at my phone, but uh, a lot is, that's kind of ambiguous, right? Like, what's a lot? And, and almost just going down this road of trying to define what a lot is. And, and just think, where does that conversation end up, right? A fight. I'm just picking a fight is all I'm doing. That is a foolish controversy. That's exactly what Paul is talking about. That is a dumb controversy for me to engage in. It's a dumb controversy for any of us to engage in. Think about our, our political climate here in America. If you have a Republican and a Democrat, and one of them is going to sell themselves out to try and convert their friend to their side, okay, so let's say a Democrat is able to convince a Republican to become a Democrat. What do they gain at the end of the day? I mean, if you look at both of those platforms, you can't go far and you're going to see hypocrisy, right? So I've converted somebody from hypocrisy to more hypocrisy. And I'm not saying don't be engaged in politics, but that's not what we're fighting for here. There's a much bigger war. Drawing people to Jesus is far more important than convincing someone to be a Republican or a Democrat. You think about mowing your lawn. Do I go that extra strip? 
Do I make my neighbor mow that extra strip? strip? That's, that's a foolish controversy. Just find what your neighbor thinks is, is going to make him happy and, and do it. Like, just don't even engage in foolish controversy and dissension and quarrels about the law. So this is what good works are not. But what are good works? What is Paul writing about here? When you go out to eat, when you go on a vacation, invite other people with you. And, I mean, we think about that. Eating, like, inviting someone to eat with us, like, that can feel like a big thing, right? Going on a vacation is much bigger, right? <clears throat> I was just on a vacation with someone this week who, who would not choose to go on vacation with other people. And we were kind of joking about this reality, how many of his vacations have turned into going with other people. Very introverted individual. Wouldn't, wouldn't choose that. And yet, this is what's being walked out in his life. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing. I mean, he's got he's to go and have some alone time after it, for sure, right? But, but he's walking this out in a really profound way that's inconvenient for him. Host a barbecue for your neighbors. And, and what can make that even better? As you're gathering with your non-Christian neighbors is invite some other people from Center Church. Allow them to see what it looks like for Christians to laugh and to share good food and good drink, to be in community. Invite them into that. Sign your kids up for sports or activities, and then go to their practices. Go, don't, don't just leave, like be there and hang out there and talk with other parents, build relationship with other people. Frequent a coffee shop or a farmer's market and go to the same barista. Go to the same vendor. Build relationship with those people. Find things that you have interest in. Do those frequently and build relationship with people. Gather people around a fire in your backyard. Host a game night. Go to parks and be intentional to connect with others. When you're at the park, go introduce yourself to people. Use your passions and your interests. Invite other people into them. Serve other people. If you hear of a neighbor who's got yard work that they need to do, offer your help. Pray for your neighbors. Pray for your coworkers and for your city. For chances to interact with them around the gospel. Pray for courage for yourself to share how Jesus has transformed you. Do all of these things. Do all of life with an intentionality to share the gospel, to share how Jesus saves fools, how Jesus saves rebels like you and me, how he rescues 
hurting people, people who are walking through the valley of the shadow of death, who feel the darkness, like the darkness, they can actually feel it around them. How Jesus rescues those who are alone. And who he rescues people who are oftentimes in these situations because they have sought meaning and life outside of Jesus. And we, we have this option here. We can vilify people. We can mock people. We can say, well, that was dumb. Why'd you do that? Or we can go after them. We can do what Jesus has done. We can seek to rescue them with the good news that Jesus has brought to us. Jesus carefully devoted himself to good works, benefiting you. And now he calls you to do likewise. As you believe the gospel, that your life would take a shape where you are looking beyond yourself. You are able to see those who you were once like, and you go to them. You push into the discomfort. You push into the, the sacrifice that's required, and you go to those who are lost. Three quick points of gospel application for us this morning. First of all, reflect on who you once were. Don't distance yourself from who you once were. Fight self-righteousness. You are not better than other people. Fight to relate well to non-Christians. Reflect on what you once were. Secondly, consider Jesus' goodness and love. We live in a world that's filled with darkness. It's all around us. If it weren't for Jesus, where would you be? What would your life look like? Ponder that. Consider what he has saved you from. So Jesus saves us from things. Consider his goodness and his love, but then Jesus also saves us to things. So rest in Jesus' grace and then walk out his good works. Serve others, give to others, generously listen to others, plan your life in such a way that you can live on mission, encourage others, invite others into your life, play with others, eat with others, and do all of this with people who have earned none of it. They don't deserve any of it. And yet, neither did any of us when Jesus came to us. Show grace in action and then speak grace with your words. We want to be a church that is distinctive with this. We understand that this is a call that many churches are not as uh, forthright with. We want to be a people who is engaged in Jesus' mission. We want to fight for your joy. Your joy is attached to this reality. Your peace and those around you, their peace, their joy, their hope is attached to you engaging in the mission that Jesus engaged in. We want to be distinctive in this way. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for the fact that you have come to us. You went on mission. You sought us out. You are seeking some of us out right now. Help us 
to respond to your call, whether that's to believe in you for the first time or to respond to your call to join you on the mission that you are still on, that you are still leading. Help us as a church to be a people that is passionate about your mission, that we would understand that our pleasure is realized by our engaging in what you have called us to. And God, I pray that we would be able to see people drawn near to you, that we would be able to see people putting their faith in Jesus for the first time, people rescued from darkness and saved into light, people rescued from death who become alive, raised to spiritual life because you are working in us and through us. So God, I beg of you that you would work in this church in this way. Work in us as individuals. Work in us as a corporate body that we would be a people, your church, on mission for your glory and for our joy. In your great name I pray, amen. I want to invite you guys to stand with us. We're going to respond. Uh, There's a number of ways in which you can respond. You can respond as we sing these songs together. Uh, You can respond if you want to pray with somebody. You can do that. You can respond by observing the Lord's Supper. If you are someone who has put your trust in Jesus, if he is your Lord, he's over your life, and he is your Savior, he has saved you from sin, we want to invite you to observe the Lord's Supper and celebrate what he has done for you.